This message was presented at the GYC 2010 No Turning Back Conference in Baltimore, Maryland. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Let's uh, bow our heads forward to prayer this afternoon as we conclude our seminar. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the Word of God and for uh, the Adventist message. And Father, this afternoon we pray that you would uh, speak to each one of us as we delve into uh, what is called the central pillar of the Adventist faith. And as we talk about what every Adventist should know, we pray that um, all of us would take it to heart to know, uh, to understand, and to be able to share uh, this beautiful doctrine. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to do a little bit of review and uh, go back to some of the concepts that were, uh, uh, we talked about in our previous seminars. We said that uh, to God, the dearest object on earth is his church. And we said that God regards his church with beautiful uh, as, as the apple of his eye. And then we also uh, made the observation that even though this is God's church, that this church is a mixture of two different entities, what we call the church militant and the church triumphant. We talked about individuals that get baptized into the Adventist church and they're euphoric and suddenly they start looking around and noticing that there's some flaws. And this is what is described in Faith I Live By 305. Has God no living church? He has a church, but it is the church militant, not the church triumphant. We are sorry that there are defective members, while the Lord brings into the church those who are truly converted, Satan at the same time brings people or persons who are not converted into its fellowship. While Christ is sowing the good seed, Satan is sowing the tares. There are two opposing influences continually exerting on the members of the church. One influence is working for the purification of the church and the other for the corrupting of the people of God. And so within the church, we have these two entities, the wheat and the tares. And you remember in the parable, uh, Jesus said, do not let or do not pluck out the tares. That's not our role, to be going through the church and figuring out which one's a wheat and which one's a tare. Jesus said, let them grow together. And it's God's role to separate them in the end of time. And that's what we need to understand, that this is a church that is in progress and process. And we said that our historical beginnings in the, begin, in the beginning began with eschatological beginnings in 1844. as an end-time emphasis. Then we had what we happened in 1888, a salvation emphasis in Minneapolis. Then in 1960, there was what we called going the evangelical way, the separation between conservative and liberal. And in 1990, we had the cultural turn and the secularization of Adventism. Now, every group did not subscribe to each one of these turns, as we'll illustrate here later. Then we noticed that there's something else happened in Adventism as well. We had the birth of what we called the Adventist intellectual. In 1960, Loma Linda and Andrews became universities. In 1980, Andrews started doctoral programs, and in 1990, we had university explosions around the world. And with the birth of the Adventist intellectual, there were questions asked, 
very difficult ones, and we had to come up with some answers to these difficult questions. Then we talked a little bit about some of the theological divisions within the church, and we talked about this group called Biblical Adventists. They had the end time beginning of 1844, or believed in 1844, as well as 1888, without the turns, and I believe that the majority of Adventists today are what we would call Biblical Adventists. They believe in the Bible, the literal nature of Scripture, as well as the spirit of prophecy. And then you have what we would call uh, Evangelical Adventists. They took the soteriological turn of the 1960s, and it's basically evangelical theology, and it's a reduction of Adventism to generic Christianity. Uh, we talked a little bit about that. Then we have generic Christianity. Uh, they took the soteriological turn of the 1960s and the cultural turn of the 1990s, and this is what we would call the secularization of Adventism. Our final group is what I call the separationists. They believe that the church is Babylon, and many times they begin having independent or home church movements. And so we talked a little bit about what is our response to the church militant, and we talked about this concept that the church may appear as about to fall, but it does not fall. And we said we need to stay on the boat. Amen? Even though there's some different things taking place within the church, we need to make sure that we stay on the ship and to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. Now, as we get to today's topic, what every Adventist should know, the hinge that makes or breaks Adventism, you remember in our previous presentation, we talked about this concept of the sanctuary. And this is an interesting quotation because it says, the subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the disappointment of 1844. Notice the language here. It said, it opened to view a complete system of truth, connected and harmonious, showing that God's hand had directed the great Advent movement and revealing the present duty as it brought to light the position and work of his people. Incidentally, the notion of the sanctuary is what sets us apart from every other denomination in the world. This is unique to Adventism. And as we discussed earlier, we talked about being balanced as a Christian, and we addressed the issue that imbalance can be solved by patterning our life after the notion of the sanctuary. And you remember we talked about this uh, view of the sanctuary. It's a bird's eye view of the mosaic tabernacle. You have the courtyard here, the most holy place, or the holy place and the most holy place. And we said that justification takes place in the court, sanctification takes place in the holy place, and um, glorification takes place in the most holy place. Now, we made the observation that many evangelicals camp out in the court, Catholics camp out in the holy place, and the unique attribution of Adventism is that we take the entire thing. And we believe in all aspects of this process in salvation, all right? Now, interestingly enough, there is no other doctrine within the Adventist church that has been attacked more than the sanctuary message. And there's a reason for this. 
If you take away our sanctuary message, you're taking away the identity of Adventism. And so it seems like in every generation, there comes up new individuals that basically come up with the same arguments that challenge the essence of our sanctuary message. And it goes all the way back to the 1860s. These were the detractors of the concept of the heavenly sanctuary, namely the investigative judgment. And the detractors, the people that attacked the concept of the sanctuary, were B.F. Snook and W.H. Brinkerhoff. The defenders were James White, Uriah Smith, and J.N. Andrews. And then at the turn of the century, we had Dudley Canwright, who was a very good preacher, Uh, J.H. Kellogg and A.F. Ballinger that attacked the concept of the sanctuary. And then the defenders were S.N. Haskell, F.C. Gilbert, and E.E. Andros. Now, at this point, I'd like to just go off on a little bit of a tangent as we talk about this notion of um, historic Adventism. Now, I believe in what our pioneers believed, but there's this concept of the past that some people have that if we go back to the time of the pioneers, it was a time of doctrinal purity. It's kind of a romanticized concept of the past. When in reality, and you study Adventist history, there was quite a divergence of beliefs during that time. There were apostasies even during the time of Ellen White. And so this concept that if we could just get back to the time of the pioneers, that we will get rid of apostasy is mis- really a misnomer. What we really need to do is, hey, let's, let's be biblical. And, if, and the pioneers were biblical, I believe, and we need to make sure that that is our center, not an era or a time or a century. And so this was what we would know as the alpha apostasy. Some, some of you may um, be familiar with that. Now, these are some of the arguments that they used uh, in reference to the sanctuary. Uh, They said that uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, when Christ entered within the veil, when he went into heaven, they said that Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, this was the second veil. Now, why would that pose a problem? If Christ in AD 31 ascended into heaven and he went within the veil, which is the second veil, are you following me? Which is the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, then it totally destroys 1844, doesn't it? And so this was one of the arguments that was used. When Christ went to heaven, he went immediately into the most holy place. So the concept of 1844 and the 2300 days was really a fallacy because Christ was already there. Why was he going from one compartment to another one? Then we come to this concept that goes along with that is that the holy place work happened in the Old Testament, not in AD 31. And then, this was another one, as soon as sin is committed, the immediate defilement of the sanctuary from the commission of sin, as soon as sin is forgiven, the sanctuary is cleansed. So basically what they believed was when you committed a sin, it registered in heaven, but once you asked for forgiveness this sin was immediately removed. So this whole concept of a cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary was, was uh, unfounded. 
Another argument was that 1844 was the judgment of Satan, and the work of the cleansing of the sanctuary is uh, judgment upon the scapegoat. And so these are some concepts that were coming around this time of the first two challenges to the concept of the sanctuary. So the investigative judgment is, is uh, not true. Now, this last one is repeated over and over again when every generation comes along, is that the assurance of salvation and the investigative judgment cannot coexist. The argument basically is that, hey, if we still have to go through this investigative judgment, then what kind of assurance do we have? And so that's one argument that is used as well. In the 1930s, there was another um, big challenge to the heavenly sanctuary. We had the detractors, L.R. Conradi and F.W.W. Fletcher, and the defender in this case was M.L. Andreessen. Now we come to the most recent challenge uh, to the heavenly sanctuary. Robert Brimsmead, uh, Desmond Ford, uh, Dale Ratzlab, who is more of a contemporary right now, Raymond Cottrell, and uh, the defenders was a DARCOM, or known as the Daniel Revelation Study Committee. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about this gentleman named Desmond Ford. How many of you have heard of Desmond Ford? All right. Uh, how many of you remember this whole thing with Desmond Ford? Desmond Ford was a professor at Avondale College. I actually took a class from a teacher that was his colleague as well. And they said that Desmond Ford was so brilliant that rather than going to the index of Ellen White's writings, they didn't have CD-ROM back then, if you wanted to know where an Ellen White quote was, they said, go ask Desmond Ford. Because he could quote you probably the page and the book that it was on. Uh, I remember the professor saying that Desmond Ford had what would be the equivalent of photographic memory. Genius. Very charismatic. And he was teaching some things in Avondale College. And the brethren got together and said, oh, we have some concerns for this gentleman. He's, he's a bright star, but maybe if we bring him to the United States, uh, he'll be a small fish in a big pond. And so the brethren decided to move him from Avondale to Pacific Union College. And as the commentary goes, Desmond Ford was not a small fish in a big pond. He was a big fish in a big pond. And he got up in the chapel at Pacific Union College and essentially uh, debunked the concept of the heavenly sanctuary. With that comes uh, a debunking of Ellen White. And it was open, and then we had Glacier View. The impact of Desmond Ford has been, has been huge for this church. I believe that one-third of the pastors in Australia left the ministry as a result. And, you know, there's actually blessings in heresy. Because what it does is that uh, it actually causes us to study our Bibles more and say, hey, is, is 1844 the concept of the investigative judgment biblical? It, is it unfounded? Because he presented some very compelling arguments that many 
pastors, as they looked at his arguments, I remember I took a class from Richard Davidson, who's now a professor at the seminary, and he said, you know, I listened to Desmond Ford's arguments, and he said, oh, what do you do with these books? He says, what what do we do with his questions that he's asking about the investigative judgment? And he was challenged as a professor. And so this led us as a denomination to go to the very roots of who we are because the the science or the logic is simple. If you remove the validity of 1844, all right, and I'll show that a little bit later, if you take out the concept of the investigative judgment in 1844 and it's not valid, it's not founded upon Scripture, you do not have a reason to be a Seventh-day Adventist. It's, it's simple logic. And this was the dilemma that we faced during this time. And the Daniel Revelation Study Committee, praise the Lord, those little books that come out by DARCOM, they're, I, I can say this because, oh, I don't know if I should say it. They're difficult readings, all right? It's, it's like reading, oh, anyways, it's very difficult. But if, if you know, it, it has some incredible arguments that have basically made mincemeat of, uh, Desmond Ford's arguments. All right? Now, I want us to go through here. Oh, this slide's not supposed to be here. I want us to go through here and look at this comment in Great Controversy, page 409, as we talk about the validity of 1844. And notice the language here. The scripture which above all others had been the both the foundation and the central pillar of the Advent faith was a declaration unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So here's the statement. Essentially, what the great controversy is saying is that the one doctrine that is the central pillar of the Adventist faith is the 2,300-day prophecy and the heavenly sanctuary. Now, I want you to think about that. It's not the Sabbath. I believe it's a pillar. It's not the state of the dead. It's not some of our other doctrines, but she says that the central pillar, in other words, you take out this pillar and you lose everything. The whole foundation comes crashing down around you. And one of the concepts that was presented by Desmond Ford was that the concept of there existing a heavenly sanctuary was a fallacy. He said it was heavenly geography. You mean to tell me that in heaven there's literally a sanctuary? And he said, come on. It's just symbolic in nature. And so once you go to that level, it destroys this concept of the investigative judgment. And so this is the central pillar, and it's no accident that every generation comes along and there's people that start to challenge this message of the Adventist faith. Now, Is 1844 valid, and why is it so central? Now, I believe that every person in this room, if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, you should be able to defend 1844 easily. Hands down. this, This is a question of identity. In other words, if you can't defend 1844 and you don't know if it's, it's grounded or you don't know the evidence for it, you don't know why you're a Seventh-day Adventist. And so I want to share with you uh, 
basically texts that every Adventist should know. And I want to show you that 1844 is rock solid. Amen? In other words, it is not up for speculation. 1844 is so solid and so logical and so biblical that if you want to use the Bible as your only source, there's nowhere else to go but this church. And so I want to basically go through these texts. It's going to be a little bit more of a Bible study, and I want you to, I know it's after lunch, and we've just eaten, and I know what happens after lunch. You know, you get sleepy. It's a wonder that I'm up here. But anyways, all right. Is there a heavenly sanctuary? So I want to go through, as we begin, this first question. Is the concept of the heavenly sanctuary biblical? And these are five texts that you should know, that you should maybe not memorize, but know that they exist. All right, so we're going to go through these. All right, because if there's no heavenly sanctuary, we're in the wrong church. Amen? And uh, this, this concept is in the Bible. All right, so let's go through here. Number one, these are five texts that every Adventist should know. They're in the great controversy. If you've read the great controversy, is there such a thing as a heavenly sanctuary? So let's go to Exodus chapter 25, verse 8 and 9. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to look this up. I don't have them on the screen on purpose because I want the, you to see them in your own Bible. These are five texts that every Adventist should know in regards to the heavenly sanctuary. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8 and 9. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you, that is the what? This is the operative word in this verse. According to the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so ye make it. Just so you shall make it. Now, the concept here is that the sanctuary was after a pattern. The question is, after the pattern of what? We'll come to that a little bit later. But the Old Testament sanctuary was built on a scale that was after a pattern of something greater. Are you following me? And so Moses was instructed in these regards. And this gives the illusion that this is a model of something greater, something bigger. It's after a pattern. Now let's go to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. And incidentally, the, notice that the last three texts come from the New Testament. Some people believe that the sanctuary is just an Old Testament concept. But Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 and 2 Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Is the concept of the heavenly sanctuary valid? Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in the majesty in heavens. And notice the language here. Paul says, A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. Did you see that? It says that Jesus is ascended into heavens and he's a minister of a sanctuary which the Lord erected and not man. This gives us the idea that Christ is high priest 
Obviously not in the earthly sanctuary because the earthly sanctuary was destroyed, but he's now in heaven, in a heavenly sanctuary, ministering in a tabernacle which the Lord made and not man. Now we come to the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, and John is in vision, and I want you to notice the different articles that John sees in vision. Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. This is after the destruction of Jerusalem. There is no earthly sanctuary. Look in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So here John is in vision. He looks up into the heavenly sanctuary, or he looks up in heaven, and he sees what article of furniture? The lampstands. All right, so this is sanctuary language, sanctuary furniture, and then go to Revelation chapter 8, verse 3. Revelation chapter 8, verse 3. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar, which is before the throne. What article of furniture is this? altar of incense. So John looks in vision and he looks up into heaven and he sees different articles of furniture. He sees the lampstands and he sees the altar of incense. Now go to Revelation chapter 11 verse 19. And I don't know how much more explicit you can get than this. Revelation chapter 11 verse 19. Then the temple of God, then the what? The temple of God was opened where? In heaven. And the Ark of the Covenant was seen in his temple, and there was lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquakes, and great hail. So you can see the progression. Moses says that the sanctuary was made after the pattern of something greater. Paul actually tells us what that pattern was. It was a tabernacle which the Lord made and not man. Then we come to Revelation, and John sees literally seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, in Revelation chapter 8, verse 3, we have an article of furniture, the altar of incense scene. And then in Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, we have this concept of there being opened the temple in heaven, and there is seen literally the Ark of the Covenant. There is a heavenly sanctuary, amen? I don't know how much more explicit you can get than that. And there's other texts, but these are ones that you can hold on to. Now, as we talk about 1844 and this concept of the investigative judgment, many people believe that at the cross, that is where judgment began. Have you heard that before? That judgment began at the cross, AD 31. And so the concept of 1844 is really moot because what need do we have for a judgment later on if judgment began at the cross? And so we need to ask ourselves these questions as we build on this. Number one, we know that there's a heavenly sanctuary. Is there a judgment after the cross? And so I want to go through these texts very quickly. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 24 and verse 25. Acts chapter 24 and 25. Verse 24, 25. And the book of Acts was delineating a time period that is after the cross. All right? Jesus has ascended, and this is the Acts of the Apostles. 
Acts chapter 24 and verse 25. And I want you to notice the language here. It says, And he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to what? To come. Now, I want you to answer this question. Is that past, present, or future? If judgment to come. It's future. So here's Paul. Sometime after AD 31, sometime after the ascension of Jesus, and Paul says that there is a judgment to come. So basically what we're doing is saying that even after the cross, there was a message of judgment to come, a future judgment. I have it here on the screen, but let's go here to Acts chapter 17, verse 31, very quickly. Another one. Is there a post-80-31 judgment? Acts chapter 17 and verse 31. Because he has appointed a day in which he, what is that, what does your Bible say? He will judge the world, past, present, or future. Future. So Paul says again, there is a future judgment. There is a day in which he will judge the world. He didn't say he has judged the world. He says he will judge the world. In other words, it's post AD 31, sometime in the future. And one last one, Romans chapter 2, verse 16. Romans chapter 2 and verse 16. The same concept here again. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So basically what we've done up to this point is very simple. We've just pushed the judgment to a future point a little bit beyond the cross. That's all that this is showing, that judgment did not take place at the cross, at least investigative judgment did not, and that post eighty thirty one there is still a judgment taking place. Now, I want us to go in our Bibles at this time to what I believe pinpoints the judgment to a more specific period. All right? Go with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. All right. I, I don't have time to go into all the nuances of Daniel chapter 7, but um, Daniel chapter 7. Oops. And actually, uh, let's go back to verse 3. All right. If you've been to an evangelistic series, it, it seems like every time you do a prophetic one on Daniel, you hit Daniel chapter 7. So Daniel is built upon the principle of repeat and enlarge. Everyone following me along those lines? All right. It's built upon the principle of repeat and enlarge. I think I have a slide here. Oh, here we go. Here we go. I do have it. All right. I need to get rid of these fancy transitions because they're distracting. Okay. So Daniel chapter 7 is a repetition of Daniel chapter 2. Everyone, everyone familiar with this? Okay. You've been to Bible prophecy seminars. So Daniel's built upon the principle of repeat and enlarge. And so you have Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel chapter 8 basically repeats what was in the previous prophetic chapter, but enlarges upon it. And so you have Daniel chapter 2, and we always have that image, gold, silver, brass. And it goes down, and... uh, These are represented by Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. And then you have, uh, in Daniel chapter 7, you have the lion, the bear, the leopard, the beast, and the ten horns. And Daniel chapter 8 is a little bit different. 
Now, in Daniel chapter 7, what many people miss is that there's something else that happens beyond this. Now, we know here, I think I have some more that comes along. And then we have the little horn power, all right? There's 10 characteristics for the little horn power. And we've identified this as the papacy, okay? If uh, that's new, come talk to me afterwards. We can have a Bible study, all right? So um, then you have the little horn that takes place here, all right? Now, I want us to go to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 8. And I want you to notice something interesting that happens here. It says, I was considering the horns, and there came up another horn, a little one coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there was in this horn eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now, I want you to notice here that in Daniel chapter 7, it is chronological. In other words, the bear follows the lion. The leopard follows the bear. The beast follows the leopard. And the ten horns follow the beast. And the little horn follows the ten horns. It's chronological in nature. Now, after the little horn power, something happens in the next verse. We have this identification of the little horn power, which incidentally gives more characteristics than all of the other ones. There's ten characteristics for little horn power. But suddenly, God wants us to gain a little bit of an understanding as to what happens after the little horn power. It's kind of like a marker in history. Now, none of us can know what's happening in heaven right now. I mean, exactly. All right? And so, historically, we know what's happening on earth, and God says that sometime after the little horn power, there's going to be something dramatic, important, happening in heaven. Everyone following me? So let's go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Immediately after the little horn power, something happens in heaven. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. I watched till the thrones were in place... And the Ancient of Days was what? Was seated. This is judgment language. So I want you to follow me. Suddenly, you have the little horn power, and the Bible says that after the little horn power, we need to turn our attention to heaven because something important is going to happen in heaven. This is a historical marker in time. After the little horn power, something important is happening. There's something being seated. His garment was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued, verse 10, Daniel chapter 7, verse 10, and came forth before him. Now notice this language, this is very important. A thousands, thousands ministered unto him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I mean, when I read this, I was just like, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. We can know that sometime after the little horn power, which we know ended in 1798, when Napoleon, Napoleon's general, Berthier, took the Pope captive and he died in exile, we know that sometime after 1798, there is an open judgment in heaven. Notice that what's open? The books are open, and there's 
there's a gathering of people. It says 10,000 times 10,000 stood around him. In other words, the books are being opened openly for all to see. Now, when we talk about this concept of the investigative judgment, I, I want us to understand that this judgment, its benefit is not necessarily for us. Okay? It's for everybody else. Now, what I mean by everybody else is all the other intelligent people or individuals in the universe. All right? And so this is an open judgment that is taking place during this time. And when we talk about this, we want to make sure that it's couched between another event. Now, I want us to go down here to verse 13. All right? It says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And so we have this concept of the judgment taking place before or after the little horn power and before the second coming. All right, I'll illustrate that here on another slide, I believe. Okay, so here we have this text I just quoted from. The judgment will come after the little horn power in 1798. Daniel chapter 7, verse 10. A fiery stream issued and came forth before him. Thousands, thousands ministered unto him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. And then we have it being the judgment before the second coming. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Now this to me is very, very compelling. Because you have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, ten kingdoms, little horn, open judgment in heaven, second coming. In that order. Our concept of a pre-advent judgment is, is so rock solid. Now, I want us to go through this concept of, of 1844, and we actually get it in Daniel chapter 8. Now, Daniel chapter 2 is built upon the principle of repeat and enlarge. And let me just speed it up here for the sake of time, if it will go down through here. I think it's stuck. I want to get to the next slide here. Okay, so investigative judgment, second coming. All right, now we come to this concept of the structure of Daniel, and this is what I wanted to get to. In Daniel chapter 8, we have uh, another scene of the same images here. I remember in Daniel chapter 2, we had Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, represented by these metals. In Daniel chapter 7, you have these uh, animals here. And in Daniel chapter 8, you have... Uh, some different animals that come into perspective. Now, you'll notice in Daniel chapter 7 that uh, these are more uh, carnivorous animals. Uh, in Daniel chapter 8, uh, these animals, you'll notice that they have a little bit of a different nature to them. Um, where are these animals found, incidentally? 
All right, they're found in the sanctuary. These, these are, incidentally, sanctuary animals, which gives us a clue into understanding Daniel chapter 8. And Daniel chapter 8, interestingly enough, begins with Medo-Persia, uh, because uh, Babylon had already passed on, off, off the scene. So you have the ram here and the he-goat, and then you come to this point right here, and you'll notice that there's a little horn power, but something else happens in our progression. You have the investigative judgment, and the corresponding element with the investigative judgment is Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14. I'll read it for you. Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. And he said unto me, For 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. All right, in this regard, just built upon the principle of repeat and enlarge, we can see that the investigative judgment, when you follow the progression, you lay them side by side, you can see that the investigative judgment is the same as the cleansing of the sanctuary. Okay, just, just side by side in regards to where they are in, in this progression. Now, when we look at this parallel and we come to this concept of how we get to 1844, um, just turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8 and we'll come to this point. Now, the hinge on which 1844 rises and falls is Daniel chapter 8 linked with Daniel chapter 9. Now, many people have argued and said that Daniel chapter 9 is totally detached from Daniel chapter 8. And basically, if you detach Daniel chapter 8 and 9, um, our whole concept of 1844 uh, really crumbles. Okay? Now, in Daniel chapter 8 you have an interpretation. Uh, go to verse 15. Daniel chapter 8, verse 1 through 14 is division. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 15, it says, Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that there suddenly stood there before me, one having the appearance of the man. Verse 16. I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli who called and said, Gabriel, make this man to do what? To understand the vision. So many times you'll find in the Bible that when a vision is given, that afterwards the angel comes to, to explain the vision. And so here the angel Gabriel comes and says, I'm come to give you some understanding in regards to this. And so in verse 17 and onwards, he gives a description as to what these entities in Daniel chapter 8 actually meant. Now, we come down to the last part of this. Let's go to verse 25. Oh, let's actually go to verse 26. And the vision of the evenings and mornings, which is told, is true. The evening of the morning, the, the vision of the evening mornings is actually the 2300-day prophecy. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. Verse 27. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick afterwards, and afterward I went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Now, I want you to follow the progression here. The angel Gabriel, just for the sake of time, I don't have time to go through all the dynamics of it, but the angel Gabriel basically told Daniel what each one of these references was. He explained what the ram was. He told what the he-goat would do. He went to the horn. 
He comes to the concept of the evening and mornings, and Daniel faints. And he says that, I did not understand the vision. Well, which part of the vision did the angel get to before Daniel fainted? When you read it, it was this part. It was the part dealing with the heavenly sanctuary, 1844. Or or I should say, we get to that later, but Daniel 8.14. Now, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is praying, and skip down to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 20. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 20. And he says, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sins, and the sins of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. Now, when you read Daniel chapter 9, you'll notice that there's no vision in there, but Daniel, Daniel says that the angel Gabriel, who he had seen at the beginning of the vision, in Daniel chapter 8, verse 22, and he informed me and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I have come to give you for, um, I've come to give you skill and understanding. Now, when you link it with these parts, you'll notice that this is the part that he did not understand, and the angel Gabriel comes to give him understanding in regards to this part. Now, there's three linkages between Daniel chapter 8 and 9. Number one, Daniel fainted before the explanation of the 2300 days, as we just talked about to this point. The angel's explaining the vision, and Daniel faints. Um, that's primarily the reason is that Daniel was concerned about the 70-year prophecy. You're familiar with that? That Babylon would uh, basically take the Israelites into captivity for 70 years, after which they'll be returned to Jerusalem. And Daniel was concerned about this prophecy of Jeremiah, and he heard unto 2,300 days, and Daniel was familiar with the day-for-year principle, and he thought that Israel would be in captivity for 2,300 years. And so he, he fainted. He just, he just couldn't handle it. And so in Daniel chapter 9, he comes with an explanation. Now, this is an important part when we look at uh, this concept. There's two words for vision in Daniel chapter 8. And hazon means the whole vision. It means the corpus of the entire vision going from um, Medo-Persia on down through. Mare refers to the vision of the 2300 days. Uh, Let me illustrate it in this way. If you go to Daniel chapter 8 and verse 26, and the vision of the evenings and mornings, which is true, therefore seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. That word right there is mare, referring to the vision of the 2300 days. When you look at the other visions that are mentioned in Daniel chapter 8, it refers to the whole vision. Now, interestingly enough, when you look in Daniel chapter 9, and the angel comes and says, I'm come to give you skill and understanding, understand the vision in verse 23, he uses the word mare, which is, uh, which is a direct link. And this is thanks to our uh, Daniel Revelation Study Committee. They came up with this concept. And so there you have, um, I, I should say, a, a linguistic link 
that links the two. So when the angel Gabriel comes and says, I've come to give you skill and understanding, consider the vision. He did not say the entire vision. He could have used this word hazon, but he uses the word mare, which is specifically referencing the 2300-day prophecy. And then we have this concept. We don't have time to go into the 70-week prophecy, but we have this concept of determined. He says 70 weeks are determined. It means cut off. So it's cut off from the larger whole in this reference. Now, uh, this is just an illustration of the 2300-day prophecy here. Now, this is the conclusion that we come to in regards to all of this. Now, we don't have time to go into the seven-week prophecy, but we've just made some basic links between the two. If you believe in the 70-week prophecy, you must believe that Christ is the Messiah. Everyone familiar with the 70-week prophecy? Many evangelicals believe in the 69 of the 70-week prophecies. They take the 70th week and throw it off into the future. But, but the 70-week prophecy is, is rock solid for uh, affirming Christ as being the Messiah. Now, when you study the 2300-day prophecy, you'll notice that the 70 weeks is linked at the hip to the 2300-day prophecy. You, can, you, you know that when you study the 2300-day prophecy in relation to the 70 weeks. Now, I want us to notice this, that if you move 1844, then what else do you have to move? You also have to move the 70-week prophecy as well. And this, this is the implication. If 1844 is wrong, when you study this in detail, then Christ is not the Messiah. And the converse of that is true as well. If you believe that Christ is the Messiah, then you have to believe in 1844 as well. Are you following the logic here? That's just the way that this prophecy is linked. They're linked at the hip together. They have the same starting point. The, the Messianic prophecy is linked with the 2300-day prophecy. So this is the conclusion that I've come to is that if you're going to be a Christian believing in Christ, then mathematically, you have to be a Seventh-day Adventist. Amen? You, you have to be. Now, you can be something else, like a Muslim or something else, but if you're going to be a Christian, logically, just because of the way that these two are linked, you have to be a Seventh-day Adventist. And, and the two go hand in hand then you must logically believe in 1844. You must be a Seventh-day Adventist as well. And this is why it's so important that we come to an understanding of this. Now, I've just kind of gone briefly through these elements, but there's a book that I highly recommend. He's actually given a seminar here. Uh, he's not talking about 1844, but uh, you can get all the nuances of this in the book 1844 Made Simple by Clifford Goldstein. You can get it at your local ABC. Uh, you know, just buy the book. It's, it just takes all the things that Darcom did and made it uh, into more uh, uh, easy, easy language and so forth. Now, I'd like to go to the heart of the three angels' message here in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. And I want you to notice the nature of this. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. 
And we know this part very well. It says, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Notice that this is what tense. It's, it's past present, I guess you could say, but it's, it's definitely present. And so this is what gives us identity, and it's a part of our message when we talk about this concept of investigative judgment, it's basically saying that, hey, we're living in a time of judgment since 1844. And that at one point, we're told that the judgment will pass from the dead to the living. And so this has some ethical implications as well. The judgment hour context determines how we should behave in the present. Amen? And that's what frames our message. I think that if we understood some of our standards in a judgment context, it would, it would help us to see a little bit more. Remember in the, um, the typical Day of Atonement, when the judgment was taking place uh, in the earthly sanctuary, it wasn't business as usual. Remember what they had to do. There were some different things that needed to take place because judgment was taking place. And so in the same regard, in the antitypical Day of Atonement, uh, there's some things that we should do differently to gain uh, every advantage during this time. And because of that, it says, Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of living water. Now, as we've uh, talked about um, this concept of the investigative judgment, I'd just like to end on this note that... The investigative judgment is for the universe. When is there a judgment that benefits us more? In heaven, during the millennium. And that's another type of judgment that takes place. And you'll notice the openness of God in these regards. And I want us to uh, just kind of think about this concept that God is open and God is fair. Imagine if you get to heaven and your mother is not there. All right? And your mother was a godly woman. And you go to Jesus and you say, uh, Lord, why isn't my mom here? She was a good woman. And from all appearances, I believe that she, uh, she lived a godly life. What if Jesus said, um, you'll just have to trust me? And to make things worse, you look to your next door neighbor and your neighbor is Adolf Hitler. Um, It's going to be a very difficult challenge in heaven if if your mom's not there and Adolf Hitler is your next door neighbor. Isn't that right? I mean, I, I would have some difficulty with that. And so the beauty of the millennium, and this this is another phase of the judgment, the beauty of the millennium before the execution, the final execution, is that God opens the books again. Amen? Prior to that, it was for the universe to see that God is fair and just in letting us into heaven. After we're led into heaven, we are able to go through the books and see through the books of record and see if God was just and fair. Amen? And he gives us a thousand years to do that. And so the judgment 
is about transparency. And we know that in the end, in the book of Revelation, that all of the saints say, just and true are your judgments. Amen? And so uh, the, the message of judgment is really a beautiful one in regards to the very nature and the character of God. Well, thank you for joining me this afternoon. Uh, let's uh, bow our heads as we, as we pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for uh, being our God, for being our Savior. And we thank you that this message, this Advent message, is not grounded and rooted in a shaky foundation. We thank you that as Seventh-day Adventists living today, we can know with a surety that our message is founded on rock-solid evidence based on Scripture. And we pray that as Bible students, you would help us to internalize the Word of God, to not only know the truth intellectually, but to follow it so that every aspect of our being may be rooted and grounded in Scripture. Father, I believe that we're living in the very final days of Earth's history. We're living in a time when when the judgment is soon to close, and we just pray and plead with you that you would keep us faithful and true to you. We thank you that in this judgment, that not only are you our judge, but you're our advocate as well. And we thank you for that. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. This message was produced by GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. GYC seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians in contemporary contexts. To download or purchase other resources like this, or if you have been blessed by GYC and would like to donate, visit gycweb.org or email info at gycweb.org. You could also reach us via mail at P.O. Box 3786, Ann Arbor, Michigan, 48106. This recording is licensed under Creative Commons. This means you can copy and share it with anyone you like. Please attribute this recording to GYC wherever you reuse it. And keep in mind that resale and alteration are strictly prohibited.